Hello, Ryan. Hello, are you Are you ready to talk about post-secondary education? Yes, I am. I, I would love to talk about post-secondary education. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is post-secondary education. It was recorded on March 24, 2020. Here's who's going to help us better understand this priority initiative and how it relates to our community vision. So I am Ryan Stowers. I'm executive director at the Charles Koch Foundation. And I'm also the uh, priority initiative lead for the community focused on uh, post-secondary education. And I've been at the foundation for about 15 years. So I've been there relative to most folks. I've been around for a long time and it's been, uh, and it continues to be an absolutely incredible experience to see uh, the growth of, of our efforts and the impact we're, we're having and as exciting as it's been to see that growth, it's even more exciting to think about what we could do in the future as we continue to uh, on this trajectory. It seems like this is something you're really quite passionate about. Um, and it, I'm curious, not that, not that it's something strange to be passionate about, but I'm curious, what about it to you makes you feel so strongly about this particular priority initiative? Well, if you, if you think about our vision and, and the, the way that we're set up to remove barriers in people's lives and to show, show both individuals and society a better way, one of those barriers in many people's lives is a, is a suboptimal education. And, and then uh, we have an opportunity, especially in post-secondary ed, where people are leaving their K-12 experience and they're looking for opportunities to develop a career, to pursue a career, to build a career, one that equips them to provide for themselves and their families. And frankly, one that would bring them fulfillment and joy. You know, that's what that's what life should be all about. And we've got many in society who's who face uh, a barrier of, of not ha having that kind of educational experience across the board, but especially at the post-secondary ed education level. Um, and so I am passionate about it because I think we've got, we've got an incredible ability in the position that we're in to create better opportunities for people to receive the kind of education that would unlock their full potential. And I also firmly believe, and I think this is a part of why I'm passionate about it, that if we don't do what we're setting our, you know, setting out to do, others won't do it, and and it won't get done. And so I, I think we've got a, an opportunity to drive real change that can have huge impact in um, millions and millions of of lives. One of the things I like to do with this podcast is really go through what it is that we're doing in, in a particular PI. And then we'll get into why we're doing it through the lens of the framework or there. I keep saying that 
uh, I, <laughs> I need to break that habit through the lens of the vision and, and then uh, talk about how we're breaking barriers. But first, let, let's really dig into what we're doing in, in the realm of post-secondary education. What is it that, that we're out there trying to, to, to do? Well, I think first off, fundamentally, we won't succeed if we don't help people think and act differently about education in this country. And, and we're just as much a part of the problem as anyone. We've all got to change the way that we think about education. And that's hard because we all came through the same system um, for the most part. And, and so first off, we're trying to help people think about education in a different way. And here's the, here's the nuance that I think is often missed, but so critical. An education uh, that, that really empowers people or unlocks their potential, we think needs to have three primary components. And one is that it needs to help them discover who they are. So what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are, what are our aptitudes as individuals to really discovering who we are before we ever attempt to pursue further education or explore learning, we need to figure out who we are. And then based on who we are, based on those aptitudes, how can I go out and develop skills and gain knowledge that, that are unique to those aptitudes, unique to who I am? And then the third piece is how can I then go out and apply those skills that I've gained and the knowledge that I've, I've gained in a way that helps other people and helps myself succeed. And we think that vision for education, that vision for learning leads to what we call self-actualization. We also think that, the, that many, if not a majority of people in society right now do not go through completely, um, do not go through that kind of learning experience. And so it's leading to suboptimal outcomes and, like I said before, um, um, barriers. And so, first of all, we got to get that message out. We've got to help people understand that what, there's, a, there's an empowering form of learning that we can help facilitate and create in society. It's not consistent with the status quo in, in many cases. And so getting people to change the culture, change the way we think is, is first and foremost what we've got to do. And we think one of the most effective ways of, of doing that is identifying entrepreneurs, thinkers, educators, uh, teachers, people on the ground who have come up with ways in which they're changing people's lives by offering or producing or creating those types of, of learning products or programs and helping them to amplify their voice. So investing in their ability to build those programs, to replicate or scale those products, and then most importantly, to help them get the word out so that people out there in society will see what's possible and then they're willing to hit the streets and demand those things for themselves and their families and that's when we get real movements around driving this kind of transformation and the long-term vision is by investing in, in these individuals and helping to stimulate movements within post-secondary education the long-term vision is that you'd have 
a very dynamic landscape uh, or set of options for people when they're approaching um, learning at that level, they'll have a much more dynamic set of options to choose from and a way to create an individualized pathway to learning that's that's completely suited and tailored for them as individuals and and as a counter to the the kind of standardized top-down um, rigid kind of check the box uh, system that frankly is in place now and that just doesn't doesn't meet the mark for most individuals when you think about this particular pi and you, and you think about the barriers that we're trying to ba- to to break the, the the question i had uh, while you were talking was do you see most of the barriers that we need to break in post secondary education being internal barriers or external barriers well, that's a good that's a good question and and i think there there are a number of of barriers and you're right i think it's probably both i think internal um if I understand the question, you know, some of these barriers are, are again, changing the way people think. A lot of people, when they pursue their education, they just go to the, the most convenient route or the route that their parents took or the route that their sibling took or the route that their friends are taking. And they don't even consider other alternatives that might actually lead to a more individualized approach to learning. And so, again, some of it's to the individual, we've got to change the barriers that are in, in people's minds about what education looks like for themselves and how it can empower them. But but we also need to we also need to look at the way that employers are valuing education and the signals they're sending. So one barrier is is looking at alternative forms of credentialing. For instance, if I'm an employer and all I care about is whether someone got a college degree then I'm going to be looking at a very limited pool of individuals. And frankly, a college degree doesn't necessarily send a lot of information to me as an employer about whether that person's capable or equipped to do the job that I'm trying to hire them to do. And so you can see this mismatch of information. And so again, alternative credentialing can help break down barriers that um, otherwise, otherwise would be there Another barrier, frankly, is just access. There are a lot of barriers to access that we've created for some individuals in their efforts to pursue education. And so how do we reduce those barriers to access and and give people more opportunities to, to again, identify opportunities that best fit their, their circumstances, best fit their unique passions, aptitudes, and interests, and give them a set of options that they can pursue. And then some of it's on the quality side. So frankly, um, you know, there's an interesting stat that I, I think most people find find interesting. If you look at, at traditional universities, um, 45% of students that attend traditional universities after two years show little to little or no gain in learning. So what are we what are we doing at these universities relative to the quality of of learning that is that is you know they're paying a lot of money to be there and they're not necessarily gaining anything from it 
or at least a significant portion of the students aren't, that's a big barrier. That's a huge problem. It's setting them up for failure when they do leave. And so they're leaving with more debt and not very much knowledge or skills. And that's, uh, you know, that's creating barriers in people's lives. So, so I think they're both, uh, Dwayne, I think there's a, a long um, list of barriers that we're working to strategically change through the investments, through building coalitions, through, through the work at the foundation. You know, I think one of the, the biggest internal barriers that I can think of is just surrounding the, the mental model that you have to go to a four-year school in order to be successful in today's society. And what we're seeing now, especially when you start looking at what Mike Rowe is out there working on, you see there's, there's a shortage of, of, of tradespeople, at least what I'm reading. There's a, sh- a shortage of, of plumbers. There's a shortage or will be. My son, for example, is going into welding school. I know some some kids from from my town that have gone to welding school. You can go and and earn a good living and find whatever path you want through a welding degree. But there's a mental model out there, an internal barrier that if you don't go to a four year school, then you're cutting yourself short. It, how prevalent is that? Is that is that something I'm making bigger than it is, or is that actually a major? internal barrier we have to overcome it's a great example of the culture change that we have to drive because that is a huge stigma and it's a huge problem and you articulated it really well i mean you, you think about you take welding or plumbing or or any of those trades you know if, if i'm an individual leaving my senior year of high school if i were put in a position where i actually took the time to discover Hopefully it's happened through K-12. And, and, and again, we've got a team working on that and we're completely in sync. But at some point early in my life, hopefully I've, I've discovered that I actually have an aptitude towards something like that and that I, that I enjoy it. And then you're right, getting over this stigma and helping people see that there's a huge pathway to success. And, and you talk about barriers or knowledge gaps there's a huge dearth of really effective welders in the country right now. And yet you don't see people pursuing it for the very reason that you pointed out. What they don't understand is that someone can go become a highly skilled welder in different industries and earn hundreds of thousands of dollars a year by either setting up their own business or, or working in a, in a high school high-skilled uh, trade or whatever it may be. And, and we've got to work hard to eliminate that perception and help people be willing to um, pursue a pathway that, that best suits them and, and, and help them see that, that, it, that by doing so, it will pay off for them in the end more than going and spending uh, thousands of dollars for a four-year degree in in, in uh, something obscure that they won't actually necessarily use. I mean, we've got to help people see the the value of pursuing that alternative approach. And 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 micro and other entrepreneurs that we're investing in are, are doing that, but we've got to go much further. You know, I think it's you talk about self-actualization, one of the four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll talk about in a little bit. 
But it, it's, it's also important to recognize that self-actualization doesn't necessarily come from the work that you do. The work that you do might be the means to achieving self-actualization through another path. Um, you know, that, that means the job allows you to pursue painting or photography or something that, that allows you to, to, once you've met your other more basic needs, then you can start pursuing these things that, that, that give you the fulfillment. And now, of course, getting that fulfillment with a job that you hate <laughs> is a lot more difficult. Uh, I've had those jobs where uh, I, you know, it was the easiest job I ever hated. And when you leave a job miserable, uh, there's no amount of, well, I, I don't know that I could say no amount, but it is very difficult to go home after eight to 12 hours working a miserable job and, and try to find self-actualization. I guess the point I was trying to make there was that the, the job itself can actually be a means to achieving self-actualization through, uh, through outside endeavors. And, and I, I don't know, do you think more often than not it is, or do you think most people actually find self-actualization in their work? I mean, I've heard people say there, are, you can have a job or you can, you know, this is not my work. This is my job. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes huge sense. And I think, I think you're pointing to, I think you're pointing to, frankly, another barrier that we impose upon ourselves. If, if any of us are in a position where we can't say that we love what we do in the workplace, then we've cut ourselves short. Because we, you know, we believe we believe in the the unique potential for each individual to do extraordinary things, and and I believe in the unique potential of of all individuals to to be able to find ways to add value in society that brings about that kind of fulfillment. And I love the way Charles talks about this. You know, I, I love the way that, and this is this has inspired me, and frankly part of why I continue to, to want to be so involved in, in this. He talks about self-actualization in a way where it's, 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 it's coincides with mutual benefit. He finds self-actualization to be when people truly understand how they can help other people succeed. And when, 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 we're, when we're helping others succeed and finding value in that, helping others that's when we can truly find um, self-actualization and fulfillment. And this is why those principles are so intertwined. But I, but I love that. And, and so um, finding something we enjoy and finding something we enjoy doing that helps other people, the data show that that's kind of the ultimate, that that's the ultimate of self-actualization and that, that brings the most fulfillment and satisfaction in, in people's lives. And and so that, that kind of learning experience, that's our vision, the kind of learning experience that can kind of that can unleash that kind of potential in people is exactly what we're seeking. Well, let's dive into those principles and let's start right at the beginning with the first mutually reinforcing principle, equal rights. When we think about post-secondary education, what how did how did the uh, the principle of equal rights contribute to our position there? You know, there are a lot of different ways you can look at these and and the the one the why the way i i think about this is when you think about equal opportunity when you think about people having a chance to pursue um like the declaration of independence the you know the pursuit of happiness and what we're all what we're here to do from my perspective 
to me, it points back to this idea of right now, there are people in society based on a ver- for, a, for a variety of different reasons who don't have the opportunity to pursue the kind of ed- education that I'm describing. And so if you think about creating a society based on equal rights and equal opportunity, we need to, we need to have a much more dynamic education landscape for people to have the ability to pursue the type of learning that empowers them almost a a lifelong learning that an approach to learning that they can reapply throughout their lives, depending on what, what happens. I mean, if, if, if there's ever a time in history that points to the need to be able to, to be nimble and change, it's right now, just given what we've been experiencing over the last couple of weeks, this, this approach to learning is something that we should be able to apply multiple times throughout our lives and 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 it's one that can lead to empowerment if we'll approach it that way there are many people in society right now who, who not only do they not have the opportunity to to do that they don't even think about it because of the barriers we place in front of them and and again we need to work to remove those barriers so that they can so i don't know if that made sense Dwayne, but that's how i think about that that principle relative to post-secondary ed no i think it made perfect sense and it leads uh, right into what we're talking about Uh, mutual benefit. When you think about post-secondary education, you think about mutual benefit. How did, how do we, how did we get our positions in this particular priority initiative? And how how did uh, mutual benefit contribute to that? I think that's a great question. I mean, the the way I think about mutual benefit, and and again, I think openness and self-actualization are probably a little bit easier to talk about through this lens. But even with mutual benefit, you know, the approach that I'm describing, um, the dynamic approach, you know, whether you're the entrepreneur creating the educational product, whether you're the teacher offering that product to a student, or whether you're the student pursuing an individualized pathway to education, that all that whole process of, of learning and and all the way down from the creator of the product to the deliverer of the product or the receiver or um, that whole educational process and, and dynamic vision that we have for education I think is has to be based on the principles of mutual benefit where I gain because your um, learning to become better and you being better um, makes my life easier and better. And I think that gets to the core. You know, I, I think education generally is at the core of a society based on mutual benefit and getting ourselves out of this kind of fixed pie mentality where I, I'm elite because I'm going to X school and and by me filling a seat at x school that means that you can't go to that school and because i went to x school i'm i'm somehow better than you or you know you can see how some of the policies and some of the framework and and the the whole institution of education as it's currently set up is the exact opposite of mutual benefit it's divisive and it's trapped and it, it's fixed pie rather than expanding pie uh, relative to the opportunities that we have in front of us. And so this to me is a part of the cultural change. How do we flip that on its head 
and 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 really look at at learning uh, through kind of a, a mutual benefit lens. And I think that's that's what would help us create and and advance the vision that we have for education generally. I think when I think about mutual benefit, also I think about really understanding that, and maybe it's the parent in me that. I, I've seen these parents who are just adamant that their child needs to go to a four-year school and the four-year, you know, the, the child's just not that into it. They want to go do something else. And maybe I've been watching um, uh, Dead Poet Society too much, uh, but I, I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> but when you Carpe think about... DM. Exactly, right. yeah. When you think about yeah. the, the, the joy that you get from seeing your children happy and the fact that you could destroy that by forcing them into something they don't want to do. It goes to that mental model that, that if, you know, you have to go to a four-year school to be successful. Uh, success isn't just monetary. Success also goes to that, that self-actualization. And if, if you are forcing someone into something they don't want to do, it's important to realize you're not just hurting them, but you're actually, you're actually hurting yourself in the long run because you won't get to experience the joy of watching them be happy. Yeah, you're right. You're you're hurting yourself. You're hurting society because the individual coming out of that scenario won't won't be in an optimal position to to add value in the way that he or she has the unique potential to do so. You're right. I mean, it's it's the exact counter of mutual benefit. And we we know that those parents aren't doing it for that reason. They have good intent, but but they're they're responding to the the, the kind of cultural inertia to push their their children to attend those schools to check the box to get the high um high-end degree and then to go get a, a high-end job because of it and and in some cases that still ends up working for a lot of people some people are suited to go get that degree and it ends up empowering them but there's a huge percentage of people that are forced into that process who don't who don't belong there based on our vision for learning and education. And then like we talked about before, there's a whole group that, that don't ever even qualify or, or, or ever make it. And that is not a society based on mutual benefit where, um, where we're helping each other gain those things that we need in order to find happiness. And uh, so you're right. I think that's a great example. I think the next two, uh, mutually reinforcing principles are really key to this entire priority initiative. The I want to read openness. Equal rights and mutual benefit foster openness by allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity, fueling progress throughout society. Do we see an openness problem in post-secondary education? Absolutely. And, and you know, it's beyond just it's beyond just the settings in which most of this occurs. It's cultural again, but if we don't have, and this is where you can you know you, we, we can talk about traditional universities um, as being kind of the focal point for this, but it expands much, like I said, much broader than that. And, and it expands to the way we treat each other and the way we have dinner conversations or conversations around in different community settings where, where we're interacting with people that we don't necessarily agree with or where new ideas are put forth. 
we have to promote a society of, of openness, of toler tolerance for ideas that we don't agree with. And if we lose that in places of higher learning, if we lose that in traditional universities where in the, in the past, you know, a long time ago, they used to be the beacons and the bastions of, of free thought and open inquiry where ideas would clash and where um, as a result of ideas clashing, you get even better ideas that would come forward that never would have come out otherwise that to the betterment of society. And, you know, you can look across throughout history how important that role has been to both the, the creation and development of ideas that drive innovation and progress and, and make people's lives better, but also to the educational experience of, of those who are there to learn and seek truth and be exposed to ideas and not in an unfettered um, way. So the, the openness that we should experience, and, and it still exists at many of our institutions, you can find it, you can find administrators and educators who are very deeply passionate about this. We need to celebrate those individuals. We need to celebrate those programs and schools that are espousing it, that are still defining themselves in this way. And then we need to we need to help those that aren't get get on track because this this um, if we lose it at universities and if we lose it in in these institutions of higher learning, then society's in real trouble. And then we you know we need to we need to maintain it at these institutions and then make sure that it's influencing the way that we 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 work uh through this outside of universities like i said in our own home and and in our own communities and the way that we interact with others so i feel like post-secondary ed and especially traditional universities can be the leader in helping us define and understand what openness um, what an open society needs to to look like or can look like and how it can empower us all to be better and not and and push out these ideas that we should feel threatened or fear ideas that we're uncomfortable with or you know there's nothing that's saying we have to agree with everything but let's be respectful and willing to listen and understand and engage in 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 good discourse on those ideas if we've lost that then i think we've lost uh, a core part of what it means to be human and what it means to engage in the kind of society that we all want to live in. Well said. Well said. I remember distinctly being at a friend's house uh, when I was out in Colorado and he engaging me in conversation with his young son over the proper role of government. And there were a couple of distinct things that stood out to me. One, here's a family that still has a family dinner and here's a family that still talks to them to, to one another around that family dinner, but they had such in-depth conversations about this, and there wasn't always an agreement. And it's that growth that comes through disagreement that we we risk losing through a lack of openness. No, that's exactly right, Dwayne. And then and then how you do that in a way where you can maintain civility, you can disagree and still after dinner put your arm around someone and and thank them for the conversation and. That's the, I think that's the ultimate is we're, we're good at, we're, we're good at arguing and putting forth our, 
points at times, but but it sometimes leads to uh, incivility and and other um, negative manifestations of this. How do we how do we do it in a way where it's based on tolerance and understanding? And it doesn't mean that you can't be passionate and strong and firm in what you think is truth. We can't lose that. We can't lose the, that kind of convic- conviction, but it also has to be open-minded and, and willing to engage in ideas that are counter to those. And that, so there's a balance there. And uh, I think this is so important and why we've got a whole nother priority initiative, you know, led by Sarah Ruger that focuses on this issue outside of, of uh, just what we're experiencing at universities. It's, I think also key into this is is respecting the dignity of the individual that 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 person you don't have to agree with them but you you know you should still respect the fact that they are an individual that they're they're a fellow human being just like you and to treat them with with dignity and respect even in disagreement um, that 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 is key let's move on to self-actualization yeah. uh, which I think okay. you know when I when you think of post secondary education, there's there's a direct connection to self actualization, wouldn't you wouldn't you say? Or am I off base there? No, I, absolutely. I mean, this is this is what I think it's it's all about, and and um, you know that's really the outcome that we're seeking at a societal and an individual level. I mean, you think about what society would look like if more of us were able to to get to that spot where where we where we are self-actualized and i think a lot of the problems we see in society are a direct result of people not being in that position and it and it leads to a whole bunch of 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 problems we believe very firmly and passionately that education and learning play a huge role they're not the only they're not the only inputs and not the only part of, of um, the process that leads to that, that that we care about, but but we think it's a huge part. And so everything we're doing is pointed to advancing a vision for education that un- unlocks the potential in people to reach that, that, that self-actualization. And it's totally flipped, um, even since I've been at the foundation, I mean, it's kind of flipped a lot of we've always been pointed in this way, but we were much more narrowly focused for a long time. It's really expanded our efforts and and opened new doors. And what's really exciting, we didn't talk about this before, but there's just so much innovation occurring in this industry and in this space right now. And it's because people are starting to look at these types of outcomes versus the outcomes that we had previously been looking at when we when we gauged the success or merit of some form of education or learning. And the more we can focus on self-actualization and putting people in a position where they're um, able to reach their full potential and really in an optimal way help themselves and help others succeed. Uh, man, we can hang our hats up and go home. It's, we got a long way to go, but that is the ultimate goal, I think, for for individuals in society. You said something there that, that triggered an idea, and this is the idea of innovation. And going back to those internal barriers, is there an internal barrier in a brick-and-mortar facility? 
Absolutely. The, the um, COVID-19, um, you know, which is highlighting a lot of the programs that are already in place or that have, have harnessed um, innovation and embraced innovation and education. And so um, innovation is so cool. Needs to be driven um, to remove these barriers and to create a. You're seeing it in the way that you're seeing it in a way that the courses are being offered, and it's in the classroom. This is a part of it, but but it's not just as simple as going on for education, helping people understand who they are, learning by sometimes learning by doing or learning in, in the ways that best suits that individual. All those. All those gaps, or frankly, all those opportunities can be addressed through innovation, through experimentation, through identifying what, what works and what doesn't, by recognizing that what, what works for one person doesn't work for the person next to them. And you think about, think about this idea that in reality, all billions of us on Earth learn in different ways the only way we'll ever come up with a dynamic learning process to address the unique opportunities that that, that presents by each individual learning in a unique way is through innovation. How innovation has the power to do it. And we've got a lot of entrepreneurs, innovators, creators, educators, experimenting in, in incredible ways right now. How do we incentivize invest support and champion those individuals to 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 go much bigger and much bolder and uh, bring their products to um bring those products to forward so that we can all benefit from them you know i think when we when we talk about some of these problems that we're trying to address that they seem insurmountable they seem huge and i just i just want to reiterate i'm so excited to be a part of this broader team because i think we're poised better than anyone else in the world frankly to address these problems based on our principles on our guiding principles on our operating framework and models by uh, the people the partnerships that we formed and and our approach to partnership uh, that's ever expanding and, and identifying new people to work with to solve problems. I don't think I don't think any of us recognize how exciting it is that we're poised to drive the kind of change that we're poised to drive. And and I I'm hoping that you know it gets all of us excited and gives us hope and and the ability to come to to work every day with that kind of passion and knowledge that. If we don't do it, it may not happen in most cases. And that's pretty exciting to be a part of. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.